I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, um, one of the uh, one of the possible nominees for the Magnificast National Convention taking place live tonight in this podcast. Yeah, that's right. I'm Dean Detloff, and I'm your strongest candidate for nomination here at the Magnificast uh, uh, National Convention. And don't you forget it. Um, if you if you vote for me, uh, you'll you'll all receive a, a free teen study Bible in the mail. So um, probably for the past few days, you guys have been watching the DNC. You've been following. Hopefully you haven't been watching the DNC, but I mean, you've probably heard about it. You maybe have heard about the RNC and all the things happening there. All the, all the good Christians all the represented ext- there. <laughs> all the good Christians. Uh, you got racist teenager. <laughs> you got gun mom and uh, dad. <laughs> you, all of the bad people are, are on that one. I mean, Here's the thing, though, about these these national conventions. It, the the DNC is just full of boring politicians. How could they possibly even? How could they possibly even hold a candle to the RNC, which has like the most unhinged people <laughs> uh, in the world on it? It's like one one is going to be infinitely more entertaining and also hateful and awful. But um, ah, it just seems like if I was in charge of a national convention, well, I mean, I guess I am. I'm in charge of this one. I would have hired a lot better talent. Yeah, and 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 who did you hire, Matt? <laughs> well, uh, I'm really pleased to tell everybody that um, my cat Stella is in the room <laughs> and she's here. Great, um, and she's ready to give a big speech. She always gives a good one. Oh, she left the room. <laughs> that's that's uh, the kind of presence that we need at this convention. You know, uh, just a, a subtle appearance and disappearance that gives you the kind of vibe. That's right. Okay, well, we are going to bypass all the speakers, and we're just going to do a quick vote. Dean, I'm going to vote for you to be the presidential nominee of the Magnificast party. Yeah, okay, we'll see how this shakes out. I'm pretty nervous. Um, I am going to have to cast my single vote, um, awarded by all my constituency, my delegate vote for you, Matt, um, for the president. Oh, Magnificast. shit. T- we're in a tie. It's a draw. Well, um, I think I think the only way to get around this is after the podcast is over, we're going to have to do a... Uh, double dare esque physical <laughs> challenge <laughs> to sort of sort this all out. Yeah, either that or we could we could simply form the central committee of the Magnificast and uh, have a more distributed uh, democratic centralist leadership model. You've heard it here, folks. The Magnificast party is doing uh, for the first time ever historically important uh, two two person presidency. 
sometimes they do it as a president and vice president, but we're just doing two people as president. Yeah. And uh, I think if you vote for us, what you'll find out is uh, we've got a lot of good ideas, and they could all be yours for the price of your vote. <laughs> two two chair people, two ministers of defense, two ministers of education. That's what you get with this party. What other party is giving you that kind of uh, level of, uh, of dedicated attention? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of value in this party. <laughs> All right. Well, we're we're not talking about the RNC or the DNC, but we are talking about something that relates to both of them <laughs> tangentially, uh, namely the topic of imperialism. It's a spooky word. You've probably heard it before. Do you know what it means? Man, you could help us out if you did. Please send us an email. Tell us. Uh, we did, though, try to figure it out for you. And we also tried to figure out how Christians uh, do and don't seem to think about imperialism. Um, so why don't we set the stage a little bit here, Matt, talking about how Christians think about it. Um, I don't know about you, but in my experience, when certain progressive Christians think about imperialism, it seems like usually they have in mind Roman imperialism. So they think back to the Bible. What was the empire back then? Uh, it was Rome, so of course we don't like that one. Uh, that then gets mapped on to U.S. imperialism. And so whatever Christians didn't like about Rome is what Christians shouldn't like about the United States. And it can lead you to some interesting places, I guess. But what it means is that people try to connect the dots between those forms of resistance in, in ancient Rome and today. So what it leads you to say is you might say something like the early Christians thought that worshiping the emperor was idolatry, and so they wouldn't do that. So naturally, we too wouldn't worship our president, for example. Or if you're really radical, you might say that Christians didn't join the military, so today we shouldn't join the military either. At the end of the day, though, empire really means a kind of counter-religion, or it's like an idolatrous social order that Christians should oppose by living a, a Christian life. So back in ancient Rome, you had a big empire, and Christians resisted it by doing their own thing, by kind of withdrawing and dropping out of it and sharing all that they had. So there's a kind of simplistic um, bridge that gets built to our own time, and the idea is the same here, that we should sort of drop out of the political process or, or engage it with our own kind of Christian specificity, uh, and we should be more concerned about being good, faithful Christians, and that is our confrontation with the U.S. empire. Does that seem right to you, Matt? Yeah, I think so. Um, first of all, I want to say that uh, <laughs> this type of rhetoric around empire isn't something that's all bad. You know, a lot of Christian, like a lot of progressive Christians have used this type of language to, I think, you know, really help uh, Christians think politically. I know this kind of idea was really appealing to me kind of when I was a Christian anarchist type or, or whatever, um, you know, talking about empire and, and what it means to oppose it and, and finding more value in your religious identity than your political identity or something. That was a really important idea for me. Um, so, so all I'm trying to say is it's, it's not all bad, but what I, but also what I'm trying to say is it's not all good and it's also kind of complicated. So, um, here's, here's an example that maybe we can kind of riff off for a minute. Um, so Sh Shane Claiborne, he's, he's fine. He's a, he's a guy and he's, uh, he's fine. I've read his books, Jesus for president. That's who I'm going to vote for, for sure. Um, just kidding. He's pretty well known for talking about empire in this kind of way, um, along with, you know, other folks that are sort of like him. Um, but uh, here's here's a quick a quick quote from from our guy Shane um, in a Sojourners um, like post, uh, I guess, article that he wrote uh, kind of renewing the pledge of Jesus for president, which is a book he wrote a few years back. <laughs> 
so Shane Claiborne says, in a world where pledging allegiance to Rome meant declaring Caesar is Lord, substituting Jesus for Caesar offered a new political orientation. Every time the early Christians proclaimed Jesus is Lord, they were also saying Caesar is not. It was deeply and subversively political. <laughs> so what you get here in this type of thinking is, um, is uh, a rejection of one empire for the uh, taking up of a different type of otherworldly religious political project. Um, and what he's doing here, I think, is kind of interesting, and it um, gives Christians a way of thinking about resisting the state. But it's also, I don't know, <laughs> kind of bizarre <laughs> in that it doesn't have a lot of material demands connected to it. Um, a lot of other things, too. But that's at least one way Christians have talked about empire and kind of found their way around it. Um, but uh, I think, as we can all agree, the Roman Empire is different from the modern U.S. <laughs> empire if that's the word that we want to keep using the you know the u.s political system political machine um it's different the, the roman empire is different from from that it's different from capitalism uh capitalism didn't exist in ancient rome <laughs> that's the thing you can think about so if christians want to think about how to oppose you know uh empire today we would have to figure out what empire actually is under capitalism so that we can actually oppose it um because you can't oppose anything unless you know what it is um, and like we always say, uh, the Marxist tradition has done a lot of work trying to explain all of this. Um, that's what Marxists do, explain things. And I think uh, it would be really helpful if Christians listened for just a hot second. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and I think you're right, too. I should reiterate uh, your point that, you know, this this language of the Christian confrontation with empire, the Christian alternative to empire, all that kind of stuff, it does do quite a lot. And um, like you say, it is really interesting. Uh, it was really appealing to me. I, I would say to it that intuition set me on the path to moving to where mm -hmm. I am now. So I try not to be like resentful of it. I'm not trying to like uh, <laughs> look down my nose at it or anything. But I guess what I mean is that intuition is what's right about it is the intuition that there is something that should make Christians suspicious of imperial projects. Um, that seems right to me. But the continuity with ancient Christianity in that respect would be to say, uh, what would it mean to sort of confront empire or imperialism under under capitalism and that forces us into some other questions when people think about capitalism and imperialism today it, it might be kind of easy to recognize certain features like you might think okay the united states is like a bully on the world stage and that's imperialist or the united states likes to go around messing in other countries and christians shouldn't like those things christians shouldn't like the u.s bullying people you know going to war in iraq or, or vietnam or whatever it might be um, and that's good and, and true. But Marxists kind of extend that um, observation or, or insight to say that imperialism is more than just a, a country being mean to other countries. It also has to do with a certain economic logic. So Karl Marx talked a lot um, about capitalism, of course, but he only talked a little bit about imperialism per se. I mean, you, you kind of can't talk about them um, independently of each other, but, you know, Marx is writing in the 1800s, and at that time, capitalism... Um, looked different than it does today. And uh, so he spent a lot more time trying to work out the kind of structure of capitalism as a, a, an internal economy, if you will, with a little bit less attention to how that relates to things that are outside of it or how it appropriates or expropriates in these kind of bigger imperialist ways. He never wrote a book about imperialism. So later on, Lenin wrote a pretty famous book on imperialism. Perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg also did some pretty important work on that topic. She had this argument that's pretty fascinating that 
capitalism has to find sources outside of the capitalist economy to colonize and generate wealth. So you can kind of see, you know, the Marxist tradition is really looking for um, ways to explain things like colonialism and imperialism according to what capitalism needs, what it forces capitalists to do. But I think the most important thing is that as decolonial movements grew up around the world, people were trying to throw off the chains of their colonizers. They came up with all kinds of theories of imperialism that were tied to their experience as colonial subjects. So people like Fidel Castro, for example, or you could think of all kinds of movements in Africa or Asia or Latin America, they all had to think about imperialist structures from their own kind of circumstance or their own national experience or whatever it might be. And in the middle of all that, Liberation theologians also did a ton of work on imperialism in the 60s and 70s, especially. Um, so there's a really strong sort of Christian component that actually kind of parallels all of this uh, really fascinating Marxist literature. Um, today, though, I think a lot of people, including some people on the left, uh, so not just Christians, but certain Marxists too, don't actually think that the Marxist idea of imperialism is very helpful. But surprise, we do. <laughs> it's both Christians and Marxists. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, in this episode, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about those ideas that we find so helpful. Um, in this episode, we're gonna try to, we're gonna try to bridge that gap between, uh, the ways that, uh, you know, progressive Christians think about empire and, um, and they, boy, they don't think about imperialism and the way that Marxists think about imperialism. Um, and maybe we can kind of, uh, we're gonna do that good Marxist Christian dialogue, maybe. Um, <laughs> Christians have a really strong tradition of being anti-imperialists, and that might be striking to you if you don't know about this history. But we'll talk about a little bit of that and like what that means. Um, a lot of it's been long forgotten. Um, so we think that it'd be a good idea to, I don't know, rethink a lot of that and get, get some of it back. Yeah, that's right. So before we get to the Christian stuff, we'll, we'll certainly end on that note. We should work through some of the Marxist stuff so that we can get our heads around what imperialism is under capital. Um, maybe just to start out, we could note that there's not really like a unified theory of Marxist imperialism, but there are some basic points. Um, you know, there's lots of definitions of imperialism, but we could maybe summarize it by just saying that imperialism, to, to sort of start out, is the invasive activity of capital. It's when um, a, a nation or a group of people intervene in foreign affairs in the interest of generating domestic profit. So when people are anti-imperialists, when they show up at rallies for Palestine or Venezuela or Cuba or, or wherever, they're protesting the intervention of powerful countries like the United States or Canada that try to hijack local political processes, that try to dispossess certain populations in the interest of, of capital. So if we look at imperialism through the lens of political economy, we can say that it's extractivist. It tries to suck up the value that's created in, in certain countries without paying for it or without having any kind of mutual exchange or anything like that. It's a, a matter of trying to get it all as much as you can without giving anything back. Um, but as you can imagine, just going to another country and sucking up that value is met with resistance. So imperialism goes hand in hand with colonization and that the occupying force becomes sort of naturalized and hegemonic to prime the pump of extraction. And that happens differently around the world, right? Like the imperialist project in, in India, um, which is a, a, a complex sort of situation of the British uh, occupying parts of India, but not the entire country, certainly not replacing the population of India. That's very different from the settler colonialist project in a place like the United States and Canada, where the whole point is to 
replace the indigenous population and make that land profitable for the sake of colonial powers. So imperialism can show up in different sorts of ways, but that bottom line motivation is to try to uh, extract as much profit out of a particular area as you possibly can um, using whatever means you have available to you. Yeah, that's good. So we can kind of talk through some of those ideas and then we'll get to the good Christian stuff in a hot minute. Um, so first let's talk about, let's talk about, uh, extractivism and like maybe how some of that works. Um, I don't know why, but like, I guess one of the most interesting questions to me that Marxism tries to answer is about primitive accumulation. Um, so, uh, in the, the Marxist, uh, vocabulary, <laughs> uh, primitive cum- accumulation is like, uh, well, basically like how did the capitalists get all this stuff in the first place, right? Like how do they get the, all the, the money and capital and land and whatever to, you know, be capitalists. <laughs> and, um, there, there, um, are some really interesting ways, uh, of answering that question. Uh, but I think the most helpful way for me, for, uh, my understanding at least is, um, through extractivism, uh, both, I mean, like locally, um, I guess in one's own country, but also, um, uh, internationally through imperialist projects, uh, of taking, um, capital and the means of production in all of its various forms, uh, for oneself and kind of tricking other people into doing it for you. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to talk about that extractivism. Like, you know, Lenin does talk about it and like a lot of other Marxists since, but the person who always strikes me or who I think is a particularly skillful person when he, when it comes to extractivism and primitive accumulation is Silvia Federici. Uh, she is a really famous Marxist Italian feminist philosopher kind of person. She's great in all, in all kinds of ways. Um, <laughs> I like Sylvia Federici so much. Um, Brett O'Shea on Revolutionary Left Radio had the opportunity to do an interview with her, which I still think is amazing. It was a few years ago, but boy, you should go listen to it. Or just go buy uh, Wages for Housework or Revolution at Point Zero or Calvin and the Witch and read about <laughs> like medieval Europe <laughs> and stuff. I don't know, man. She's great. That's all I'm trying to say. Anyways, um, something that she writes a lot about uh, in... Uh, in a few different places uh, is Africa and um, uh, this, this particular mechanism of uh, extractive imperialism called structural adjustment programs. Um, It sounds a structural adjustment program sounds like the most boring class session on your syllabus of a business school department (laughs) program class, whatever. And it is, but it's also like basically how capitalism keeps capitaliseming. Um, so, okay, this is a quote from uh, uh, Silvia Federici's essay called The Debt Crisis, Africa and the New Enclosure. I'll read it and then we can, I'll talk yeah, yeah. or something um, and kind of see what, what it means here. So structural adjustment programs is the Reaganite laissez-faireism applied to the third world modeled on Milton Friedman's formula for post Allende Chile. It's a really interesting connection. I don't think I made before this, but cool. Um, Its stated objective is to create an environment more congenial to business investment and to make African labor competitive on the international market. Thus, it calls for the removal of all measures uh, protecting the standard of living of the working class and practically wipes out the gains the African people have made through the um, through the colonial struggles. 
Structural adjustment programs mean that in exchange for growth-oriented loans, a country must accept a packet of reforms that include the liberalization of imports, the privatization of state industries, the full privatization of land tenure, the abolition of restrictions on currency exchange and commodity prices, uh, the demise of subsidies to healthcare, education, basic commodities, and constant devaluations. So, okay, um, structural adjustment programs are this very tricky way, um, big time capitalist dirtbags <laughs> transform countries to make them more friendly to businesses, basically to big business. So like what this means in practice is that like, um, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a way to transform a country that is currently working off like a subsistence mode of production uh, and transition it towards uh, surplus production, towards capitalism, right? So this is like a big uh, political economy kind of way of thinking. But like basically, if you're like a, a country that is, I don't, I don't really like the word, but developing, if you're a developing country or whatever, and you want um, money from the International Monetary Fund or some other thing that's like it, you basically have to like ruin your entire economy as it actually exists. So people from other countries, um, you know, like Europe, the United States, uh, and so on, uh, can like have a nice cozy place to come extract all of your resources. Um, but that's, that's the extractivism of imperialism, right? It's, uh, capitalism is a big hungry monster and it needs to find ways to make, uh, uh other countries more hospitable to its, uh, its extraction and, uh, accumulation of capital. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's important to sort of dwell on that uh, as a, a big feature. It sounds maybe kind of jargony, but it's important to figure out because if, if you think about imperialism um, prior to the period that we sometimes talk about as neoliberalism, or um, to use maybe a, a more familiar term, like that Reaganite laissez-faire kind of capitalist economics that, that you were just saying, Matt, um, if we think about imperialism before that, what we tend to have in mind are, you know, countries like taking their army, going to a different country, occupying that country, and forcing them to produce certain things or have certain, like, uh, political leaders that will or will not, um, that will, like, be be more amenable to your particular interests, right? So uh, the United States did a ton of this stuff, right? Like, um my favorite example, and there's tons of examples, but my favorite one is uh, in Nicaragua. Uh, if you've listened to this podcast for a long time, you know that we're big fans of uh, the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua in the, the 70s and going forward. Um, they're named after a guy named Augusto Sandino, who was a Nicaraguan peasant who opposed the United States military um, and the U.S. And in Nicaragua at the time, in the early 1900s, they installed a uh, what what would become a, a dynastic dictatorship, um, and they did that because they wanted to have a, a business partner in Latin America that would do whatever they want. Um, later on, uh, after a long time, people sort of decided in the United States and elsewhere that that's not how they wanted to do imperialism um, for a number of reasons. Uh, people started to not like it <laughs> in the United States, right? They would uh, protest those kinds of things and not be okay with it. The global community didn't like it too. So they came up with all these extremely subtle and more complicated ways of basically getting the same thing, which is access to extremely cheap labor, uh, access to places where you can pay people basically nothing uh, to make your stuff, and then you can sell it for a ton of money back in the imperial core. Um, maybe another example, the sort of... Um, drive this home is like if you think about like a nike shoe 
um, Nike shoes in like the nineties were sold for, you know, a hundred dollars or whatever. Um, but it cost them like a dollar to make, uh, all said and done, which includes material, labor costs, all the rest of it. Uh, the way they got all that stuff was through these kinds of things, right? Structural adjustments in different countries that made the process of production extremely cheap because they paid people essentially nothing. Uh, that's really what we're talking about, right? So a, a country doesn't have to like go take its big army to a different country and say, you're going to do this for us or else. Um, instead, what they do is uh, a poor country needs a loan or needs money because they're, you know, starving or whatever. And they go to the global community and say, we need money. And they say, we'll give it to you, but only if you do this stuff. And uh, it's important to see imperialism as sort of that, that subtle way by which war is continued in these these other ways. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's like a really, yeah, saying it's subtle is good. Um, it's just like it goes on under our noses constantly right it's like it's a part of the the big supply chain of capital yeah. um i should clarify it's it's subtle for us but it is not subtle for sure. the people who are you know being affected by it directly right i mean from the perspective of an american consumer yeah. uh you know you'd never know it right because <laughs> we're we're dumb as shit but yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah i mean for the people elsewhere that's actually happening too it's acutely obvious yeah it's like well we should maybe we could uh pause on this point a little bit more right so when christians think about imperialism and they think about rome uh again it, what we what we're thinking about is uh, a big huge state that you can look at and identify and say aha there's the empire right it, it shows mm-hmm. up in all these really obvious ways there's statues of caesar everywhere caesar's on your money there's a, a big Roman centurion in your town or a, a garrison of them in your town or whatever, right? And that's imperialism. Um, you can see it right in front of you. But uh, for us, like, we we sort of try to simply transpose that onto the U.S. So we say, aha, there's the empire because there's the White House and the person who lives there and maybe there's people on our money and the kind of American myth um, that we all grow up in is this big idolatrous fiction. And, you know, all that is true to a certain degree. Um, but, uh, the real challenge of the empire is that it's actually much, much harder to see, right? Like when you go buy a pair of Nike shoes, um, that is actually your participation in imperialism much more than like you deciding or not deciding to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, and there's this kind of weird way in which the, the obvious or explicit form of American imperialism actually serves to distract us, I think, from the implicit or, or not so obvious forms of imperialism that we all rely on to buy a pair of shoes or whatever. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, also not discounting the fact that there are like a gazillion military bases of course, yeah, of <laughs> um, course. around the world, too, the United States have put there. But like still, I mean, the point stands, right, that uh, the Christian formulation of empire uh, focuses a lot on the performative, you know, like make sure you don't have an American flag in your, uh, in your sanctuary, which like you probably yeah, shouldn't. definitely don't. Um, <laughs> definitely don't. <laughs> but, uh, there's a lot more, I think going on with the rejection of empire than Christians realize because it's, um, I don't know. It's just not so obvious uh, unless you have a robust critique of capitalism. That's right. Robust critiques. That's what we were about around here. Oof. So robust. <laughs> You sniff it, you it's like a line, you know, you swirl it around and boy, that's a robust critique. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Well, um, so the extractivist thing is pretty big. <laughs> it's a huge part of this whole situation. Uh, but there's a lot of other things going on too, right? It's not uh it, it's not just extractivists. There's a lot of other things happening. Um 
So I, I have kind of a lengthy quote here that maybe we can talk through a little bit, Dean. Um, that's uh, pretty interesting uh, and adds some really, um, has some robust complexity to this <laughs> yeah. whole discussion. Some um, good flavor now. <laughs> this is from, yeah, this is from the most recent issue of the Monthly Review, which is a very good socialist magazine that I think we talk about probably once a week. Um, <laughs> Monthly Review, burr, 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 air horns. Um, yeah, uh, the most recent one was about uh, uh, racial capitalism, and the opening uh, the opening essay is by Nick Estes and Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Uh, Nick Estes, by the way, has a great podcast called Red Nation. Mm-hmm. You should listen to that one. We'll load it up right after this and get get in on it. Uh, he did an episode with Brett O'Shea on Rev Left uh, as well. <laughs> so lot, lots of uh, monthly review plugs, lots of Brett <laughs> plugs. We're doing a, we're doing it all. We're supporting our friends. That's right. um, okay. All that to say, uh, they run they uh, they wrote an essay together called "Examining the Wreckage," which I thought was particularly. It was so robust. Um, anyways, I, I think it's helpful because it's a great intervention into the conversation on imperialism um, because it um, broadens the conversation from uh, political economy and things like structural adjustment programs to um, to colonialism and uh, and you know the ways that um, indigenous people are pushed to the very edges and, uh, and, and so much more. So I'll, I'll read a quote here from the essay. It's a bit lengthy, but that's fine. And then we'll talk about mm-hmm. it. Okay. So uh, this is from, it's kind of the, the closing of their essay, but it's, it's a good one. Um, many white dominated leftist organizations, unions, political clubs, and intellectual circles have historically not taken seriously indigenous knowledge, movements, and politics. And settler colonies' aspirations for socialism frequently allied the presence of indigenous people and nations, or at least the continued plunder of their land. In other words, a social society is easier to conceive than a world without settler colonialism. An extremely important intervention. Um, There you go. Uh, They go on to say, This is a core feature of settler colonialism, not just the elimination of the native, but also the naturalization of unnatural settler states, built on the annexation of indigenous land and the genocide of indigenous people. Historian uh, historian Manu Karuka, whose name I'm probably saying extremely incorrectly, provides a cogent critique of settler colonialism, reconceiving it more acute, more accurately as a continental imperialism. From this perspective, when we read Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis alongside Lenin's imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, through the lens of native indigenous studies, we are presented with a series of different questions in understanding the nature of the United States. There is no national territory in the United States, according to Karuka, nor is there a national political economy, only an imperial one, which continues to be maintained not through the rule of law, contract, or competition, but through the renewal of, con- of colonial occupation. Put another way, Turner wrote of the closing of the frontier as a sort of end of history scenario, understanding the United States is driven fundamentally by land-based territorial acquisitions through war and treaties and whose political and economic engine was the frontier. The sudden transformation of that project, Turner lamented, arrived when there was no longer a frontier county reported on in the 1890 U.S. Census. What was left for the United States to conquer? Lenin conceived of imperialism as driven by monopoly and capital not trade and discovery. We can understand this best in the way the United States rapidly expanded. 
in less than a century from its original 1784 boundaries, beginning with the first 13 colonies, the United States annexed nearly 2 billion acres of territory, most of which is west of the Mississippi River. Okay, that was so much to read. <laughs> you did a great but, job. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's so much to read, but I think it's a really important uh, aspect of colonialism that um, I think socialists and Christians need to hear. Uh, Nick Estes and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz are not wrong that um, that uh, white-dominated leftist organizations don't do a good job of explaining this. So I'm, help I'm uh, extremely happy for their robust criticism as well. <laughs> um, but I, th I think what's what's really striking about this, though, is that it's not just about you know extractivism, but it's about the whole process of turning people um, who have dominated another people into sort of a natural thing that's there um and it kind of uh it, it uncovers a little bit more of that um that logic of empire and the way that it works that is otherwise i think um invisible to us because we are in a particular position to benefit from it mm -hmm. yeah i think that's right um also that that sort of political economy point that comes into this too that uh there's there's no national territory in the U.S., but just a, an imperial one that has to be um, maintained through all these different ways. Um, bringing in the fact that Lenin ties imperialism to monopoly and capital, not trade and discovery. Those kinds of things are really important um, because they also help us to understand that, like, settler colonialism is a project that, again, isn't just sort of premised on, like, Europeans being bad, although they were, you know, no, not denying that they were bad for sure. Um, but like there are economic reasons to be bad or there's, there's an economic, uh, logic that drives people to, uh, try to replace or genocide indigenous peoples in the interest of building up their own profit and, and, you know, building up a massive, uh, economic stronghold. And I think that is again, just a, an important piece, um, because, uh, it helps us to integrate all these struggles as well. Right. Um, it helps us to integrate, struggles for indigenous sovereignty with struggles for anti-imperialism. Uh, it helps us recognize that imperialism, like you said, is not just an extractivist thing that happens somewhere else and kind of just uh, pulls all the resources back in the middle, but it's also something that happens at home, um, which is something that indigenous activists have long talked about, right? That uh, indigenous people in Latin America are affected by the U.S. and so are indigenous people in the U.S. or the same with, with Canada. So uh, helpful to be able to pull all those threads together in one spot yeah definitely um there's so much more we'd probably say about i mean both of these sort of interventions into imperialism but there's more we can say about imperialism in general right lennon wrote a big book about it you should go check it out <laughs> i guess if you want uh but it's complicated um and i think these two um complications help us i mean first of all understand it more deeply but just give some really important caveats to like what it actually is and how it works um, but, uh, this is okay. So this is something that Dean and I talked about very briefly before we started recording, but we, um, Christians have this really particular role in anti-imperial struggles, uh, in the U S and Canada and also in Latin America and, uh, and elsewhere. But like, um, it's really hard <laughs> to remember that. I think our, something's happened to our memories where we've, uh, we've broken our brains so severely that we've forgotten um, the roles that uh, Christians and liberation theology have kind of played in uh, anti-imperialism as Dean was sort of listing out all of these uh, different groups that existed in the seventies and the eighties and even in the nineties. It's just like, 
holy shit, this is a real thing for a minute. And for some reason, no one knows about it right now. <laughs> so, uh, Dean, uh, being the being the guy who recently presented a paper on this topic, tell us about Christians and um, and uh, anti-imperialism. Yeah, sure. Um, I think in a minute we should talk definitely about like a number of groups that were um, doing this kind of organizing work in the Imperial Corps, because I think that's important, as you say, to, to repair that memory you know, you have to go find um, what happened so that you can think about what to do now. But uh, I said at the very beginning of the episode, too, that liberation theology um, came alongside all these decolonial movements uh, and alongside some of the most important interventions in imperialism as a kind of theory. And one way that Christians did that was through liberation theology, which, of course, is not uh, just an academic discipline. You know, there's a scholarly component to it, but it's primarily a rooted in, in movements and in practice. And uh, one thing that's so fascinating about liberation theology is that when they start thinking about economics, uh, they come on the scene when there is one particular theory around imperialism that was extremely popular that is sort of shorthanded, fairly or unfairly, to being called dependency theory. Um, there's a number of uh, people who contribute to it. Um, but the the sort of the short of it is that uh, it, it sort of sees the world economy in terms of core and periphery. So there are imperial cores, the United States, Canada, Europe, maybe some other places. Um, and then there are places, regions, countries that are deemed as peripheral. And the the core extracts, as we've been saying, all this kind of value from the peripheries. But the most important thing is that the core actually works to actively keep the peripheries in a peripheral position. So there's nobody wants in the core to let these peripheries become more independent or to sort of grow in their own um, economies or whatever. The, the whole point is to keep them underdeveloped. And that theory was extremely popular among liberation theologians. So if you pick up like a book by a Latin American liberation theologian and written in like the early 70s, probably at some point you're going to hear a lot about dependency theory. And I think what's important about that is, first of all, uh, it's a testament to the fact that Christians who actually live in places where these conversations um, make the most kind of difference, you know, being on, on the worst sides of imperialism, uh, they felt the need to go out and find these kinds of analyses, right? So they weren't content to just say, well, this is how Christians resisted Rome, and so that's how we should do it in Peru or Brazil or whatever. Um, they said we have to figure out what is the actual economic situation uh, that keeps our country the way that it is and how can we sort that out. So dependency theory was one way to, to do that. Um, the other thing that I think is really fascinating about it is that liberation theologians felt like it was a sort of um, Christian duty, I guess, to, to parse that out and articulate it. Um, and they do a pretty good job. Like, not only are they drawing from dependency literature, but they contribute to it in ways that even get uh, quoted by other leftists that are not, you know, liberation theologians. Um, like, I'm reading about Jamarta Harnaker, who we talked about just recently on the podcast. And uh, she um, occasionally will just, like, quote a liberation theologian as one more scholar among many others. And I think what that testifies to is that Christians sort of earned their spot in the left by being willing to do the homework, to do the hard work. And that's one sort of intuition that we should recover. Yeah, I think so. Um, so a uh, longtime friend of the pod, uh, Jim Hodgson, you might remember him from previous episodes on Venezuela and shoot. What else did he Bolivia. do? Bolivia. He's been on the more. 
Oh, Bolivia. That's right. He's been on the podcast more than once. Jim's a good guy. He's very smart and knows a lot about Christian anti-imperialism and has been, um, uh, you know, actively involved in, in, in movements of Christian anti-imperialism. Um, uh, in, in one conversation we had with him, he kind of directed us towards some interesting resources from the United Church of Christ. Uh, wait, no, United Church of Canada. Sorry. <laughs> from the United Church of Canada, which is the uh, church he works for. Um, but basically what he gave us was this uh, kind of like this report, uh, a, a recent report from um, uh, the United Church of Canada about uh, anti-imperialism in the world and Christianity. Uh, the, they use the language of empire more than anti-imperialism. But anyways, um, what Jim gave us was really helpful because it's kind of like a, a very contemporary articulation of what it looks like when Christians are good at, at understanding imperialism. Does that sound right, Dean? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay, cool. Um, I mean, there's a lot going on there. They, you know, they are just like you said, deeply invested in kind of understanding the world um, and like the struggles of other Christians and not just like willing to kind of like be vague about it. So they're, you know, willing to kind of get into the politics of these situations. So here's a quote from the United Church of Canada. Um, that is just like a really quick explanation um, of what empire could mean for Christian solidarity and Christian anti-imperialism. Uh, they say this, while empire in Jesus' time consisted of distinct forms of oppression, including military occupation, violence, unjust taxation, and slavery in 2006, that's when this um, report is from, <laughs> so, you know, dated, but it still works, uh, we have to look deeper and wider to put a recognizable face on empire. Some, especially after September 11th and the United States government's declaration of the war on terror, point to the U.S. as the most powerful economic and military power in the world, as the principal power of modern-day imperialism. The U.S. doctrine of preventative war, aggressive unilateralism, violations of international law, and maintenance of hundreds of military bases around the world have prompted comparisons to imperial Rome. But while the U.S. may have uh, much to answer for, and indeed millions of Americans are holding their government accountable, okay, that I wish that was still true, <laughs> um, empire has more than one location. As stated to seek, as stated in to seek justice and resist evil, contemporary uh, empire is not dominated by any single state, but by a network of powerful economic interests held together by the ideology of neoliberalism. Furthermore, it is a system in which most of us play some role, wittingly or unwittingly. So um, this is, I think, a really helpful bridge from the two things that we talked about. Right on the one hand, you have the Shane Claiborne kind of uh, reliance on the language of empire and like uh, nationalism as idol. And then the other hand, you have this like, um, you know, all of the economic analysis um, of Marxism um, and what, what the United Church of Canada did in this statement, even though it's from 2006 is kind of bring these two together in a really helpful way. Right. Um, it kind of gives a, a real look at what, um, what Christians have to gain in understanding uh, imperialism as a, as a thing in the world. Um, and I think it's a, a pretty it's a good bridge. I'm crossing that bridge right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have to say it's a, a wonderful um, passage. Uh, it's a, a really heartwarming thing to hear um, because it is actually very good. And it's like the fact that it's from an institutional church, I think, is quite remarkable. Right. 
Um, Absolutely. Like, this is the kind of thing that maybe you'd hear a couple of people, like a couple of weird Christians say at a conference or something, but maybe not the kind of thing you'd expect a, a whole denomination to say. And people should know, too, the United Church of Canada is the biggest Protestant denomination in the country. So it's not like this is just a, a fringe kind of Protestant group or whatever. Um, mm. The United Church has its own problems. But uh, to their credit, I think if anything has survived in terms of uh, an anti-imperialist Christianity in Canada in a meaningful way, it has been that tradition has been like stewarded by the United Church. Um, again, not always perhaps in the best possible way, but um, better than anybody else, I think. Uh, and what's fascinating to me, at least, is the United Church has obviously uh, retained some memory of liberation theology. Uh, you know, it's not like liberation theology is gone or went away, right? It's still practiced in all kinds of places around the world, but it has very clearly, I think, ebbed quite a lot in the U.S. and Canada in particular. It's it's like a often, not always, but often reduced to like a syllabus topic at a seminary it's not really like a social movement um, these days. And uh, the United Church at least deserves a lot of respect for like having learned those lessons as an institution, it seems to me anyway. And uh, definitely, I mean, they hired somebody like Jim, so they know, <laughs> you know, they have good, good political intuitions, at least on that score. Uh, so that's pretty impressive. Um, I think the biggest thing that sticks out to me, at least from this is not just building that bridge, but the, the sophistication of it, right? Like, recognizing that empire is is based in in capitalism but what that means is empire doesn't have just a single state that's sort of calling all the shots but it's actually a network of really powerful economic interests um and that is probably the hardest thing to get your mind around because it requires you to figure out where that network is going yeah and it also requires you to name capitalism as a problem right because right? <laughs> that's what the network is right um you know a, a big interconnection of uh of capitalism um, forcing its way through all types of different parts of the network. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but yeah, uh, so it's, it's, um, hmm, I don't know. Uh, not, not many churches, probably any others in the United church have, have said something quite like this. So um, it is good. It was in 2006, <laughs> which is wild, <laughs> but yeah, I think there's something here to kind of reclaim in Christianity uh, and, um, it just kind of takes us to sort of reactivate mm -hmm. that memory of uh, Christians doing this kind of work. Yeah, I mean, we should talk more about that, right? Like, it's not immediately obvious to Christians now that they should care about capitalist imperialism. But uh, in the past, like we've been saying, Christians actually did a lot of work trying to figure it out for themselves, but also to explain it to other people. And again, not just like liberation theologians, like professional, um, professional, smart people talking about God and religion. But, uh, mm -hmm. like, rank-and-file Christians thought that this was important. So, um, like you said, I presented a paper recently at this conference on the Christian left, and my paper had to do with uh, Canadian imperialism and, and theology or Christianity. And, I mean, I was, like, so stunned by all the stuff that I came across uh, trying to do research for it. Like, all kinds of groups that were preparing resources and study guides and everything. Like, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there were so many Christians that were either in anti-imperialist groups and they were just, you know, it was like common knowledge that they were there because they were Christians or they were forming Christian anti-imperialist groups themselves. So like, I'll, maybe I can just give some examples. Um, we talked about Christians for Socialism a long time ago on this show. They were, they still are probably my favorite in this whole group of people. 
But even like missionaries like the Mary Nollers in the U.S. or the Scarborough priests in Canada got really interested in imperialism and they published a ton of literature, um, the Mary Nollers through Orbis Books. Uh, in Canada, there were like lots of study groups with names like the Latin America Working Group. There was a, a Canada-Asia Working Group. There was um, the Canada-China Program and a ton of other ones. And basically what they would do is like collect newspaper articles, collect uh, scholarly articles and books and things like that to try to make heads or tails of what was going on in other countries and specifically what Canada's role was in what was happening elsewhere. And they also set up physical like relationships or partnerships in places like Cuba, uh, the DPRK, um, lots of other places in the world, precarious places, socialist places and otherwise. And, you know, some of these groups survive into the 90s or as late as the early 2000s, but pretty much all of them have been rolled into institutional ec ecumenical organizations or they've collapsed, just like the anti-imperialist left has really collapsed. Um, which I think is all just to say that we don't have to, like, reinvent the wheel if we want to figure out how to be Christian anti-imperialist today. But we do for sure have to figure out what it means to um, sort out how imperialism shows up for us now. And thankfully, there's like a lot of precedence to to do that as Christian people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just like it, it seems like such an obvious thing to care about. But like, <laughs> um, you know, do you as a Christian person want to be unwittingly playing a role in the oppression of other people? <laughs> I if don't. Not maybe you should care about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, it seems like an easy sell, but uh, it's a hard thing to understand. It does take work and study and um, a lot, but it is uh, it is an investment worth our time, I think. And man, it would be so cool to see um, more of these types of groups kind of pop up again. Um, we need we need that so badly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's probably also worth saying too that, like, you know, once you understand imperialism and then you commit yourself, even more importantly, to anti-imperialism. Uh, it forces you into a lot of weird situations, right? It makes you kind of unpopular in certain cases. And it also makes you have to really sift through some really complicated conversations. So, for example, like, you know, before I cared about anti-imperialism, I didn't have any idea what was going on in Venezuela. And I just, like, assumed whatever the news said about it was probably right. Um, after I did a ton of work, all of a sudden I had lots of different opinions about Venezuela and I went to protests and rallies and solidarity with Venezuela and all that kind of thing. And, uh, as you do that, people do start looking at you like you're, I don't know, going off the deep end <laughs> or something. Um, right. Because we live in like a, a, a world that has a pretty obvious media hegemony and a capitalist hegemony and a, an imperialist one. Um, it's the same kind of thing that happens when you start asking hard questions about Cuba or, you know, um, I don't know, a, a number of, of complicated places around the world that aren't popular in the U.S. or Canada. And I think that uh, it's important for Christians to recognize that, too. Like, Christians are always talking about being a peculiar people or, like, being set apart or called out or, you know, wanting to resist the the national myth-making of, of the U.S. Or, or, or elsewhere. But to do that, if you end up committing yourself to anti-imperialist uh, politics, I mean, you'll find out really quickly <laughs> what it's like to feel like a peculiar person because of your convictions. Um, and I think that's important too. you know, not to, not to say that that's the only reason to do it, but just to say that like, if Christians are really serious about having a, a sort of independent, you know, kingdom oriented critique or however you want to put it, um, 
you might find yourself in these kind of weird political conversations as well. Yeah, I think so. Um, I wish there was like a, an easy thing that we could do where it's like, well, you should join this group and learn more <laughs> about it, but there's not. Um, go check out the United Church of Canada, see what they're <laughs> doing, and they're sort of like missions, uh, empire, imperialism department. That's what it's called. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's at least a good place to start. Uh, it's it's a good model to kind of look at, um, uh, you know, just to see like what other people are doing. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this much too. Like, if you live in a city, no doubt there are people working in anti-imperialist areas. And once you start working in one, you find out about a lot of other ones, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. I've been invested in these um, Venezuela stuff for a while, but, like, through doing that, you end up meeting all kinds of people who do stuff with Cuba or Bolivia or Haiti and all that kind of thing, because everybody sort of, you know, imperialism is the big unifier. So uh, you rub elbows with all kinds of other folks, too. Um, so I'd say if you live in a city, you should certainly just go to a rally or find people who are organizing them. Um, for me, I, I come across that stuff because I know a lot of communists and that is helpful. Um, but, uh, anyway, all that to say it's out there. If you don't live in a city or you're like, you know, a place where that kind of organizing just doesn't happen or you can't find it. Um, I don't know, maybe you have to commit yourself to study and learn about it and start something. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you it'll be your life, but all that to say, there's more than likely there's somebody nearby who's already, you know, on the path. All right. All right, folks, you heard it here. Imperialism. It's bad. Um, and that, that draws to a close the Magnificast national convention. (laughs) Uh, you're uh, coming straight to you from from the your two presidents that have been elected by one another. That's right. Um, Soul delegates imperialism, passed. and and maybe next year you can vote too. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but that's it. Yeah. Um, oh, dang! I should plug one last book here before we go. This is a an awful oh, yeah. way to end a podcast. But um, I so as a good Christian who wants to understand ancient imperialism and contemporary imperialism. Uh, I read a pretty good book um, a few months ago by this woman named Ellen Meeskins Wood. She does a lot of Marxist um, theory about like medieval society and the transition to capitalism. Um, she's not not everything she says is the best, but a lot of things she says are are very good. And she wrote this book called Empire of Capital, and it's pretty short. But the entire premise of the book is she tries to explain how capitalism specifically is different from ancient imperialism and uh as Christians, I think it's just helpful to like parse that out and figure out what's similar and what's different. So anyway, if you just want like an extremely short and extremely Marxist political economy heavy kind of book, it's a bit dry, but uh, that's just one place to go. I don't know. Christians got to figure out how to make those links and Marxists can help us do it. So anyway, that's a good place. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard and you want to support these two presidents, if you want to put food on our presidential tables, uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash the Magnificast, where we do another podcast called the Magnificast Lock-In. So if you want access to all those good Oval Office conversations, that's where you're going to find them. Um, Let's see. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at the Magnificast. You can find us on Facebook, kind of, in a group called The Magnificat's Basement. Um, I don't know, I don't really use Facebook anymore, but maybe I ought to start again. Uh, you can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. Our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I 
I don't wanna get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, you keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. I would